Uh, back when St. Paul was going before the various Roman authorities at the end of the book of Acts. That's kind of where I'm at in my own readings right now. Um, It seems that the Roman authorities, the Roman government, saw this new religion, this new Christianity, as something of a subsect of Judaism, kind of a, a, a new thing arising within Judaism. And Judaism was an officially protected religion. So the Roman government's like, we're not quite sure what to do with this. Um, maybe we'll just let them sort it out themselves, um, which didn't quite happen. But by the time the New Testament era is closing, the Emperor Nero is actively persecuting Christians, and several of the apostles die under Nero's orders. And this kind of persecution continues on and off for the next few hundred years until the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity in the 4th century, Not long after that conversion, uh, we see that Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. And in fact, uh, the Roman emperors presided over each of the ecumenical councils. Now, they didn't make decisions, but they did call the council and they kind of had the gavel in their hand, so to speak, to kind of run the show. But even during the height of Christendom, the relationship between the church and the state was not always without tension nor was it always easy to define. So at times, we see the government deposing Orthodox clergy. St. Athanasius famously was uh, deposed and reinstated three or four times during three or four different emperors. At other times, we see the the bishops um, excommunicating the emperor for things that he did. At times, we see um, the church claiming to be above the civil law. Other times we see the civil law actively fighting the church. At times we have more separation between the church and the state. At other times there was outright confusion between the two. And sometimes these issues that caused tension were more theological. Other times they were more political. In our own context as Americans, with explicit constitutional protection for religion, combined with explicit prohibition against establishment, which is often interpreted as a separation between church and state, this issue can be even more muddled. So when St. Peter says in our lesson today, our second lesson, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, we're going to naturally raise an eyebrow. What does, he, what does this mean? Isn't this the same guy who begins his testimony before the court saying we ought to obey God rather than man? And in fact, when we look at this second lesson, the assigned epistle for the day, the command to submit to earthly ordinances seems a little bit out of place in a text that begins with a command to abstain from, from fleshly lusts. Try saying that five times fast. <laughs> to help with the context... I suggest we should back up a couple of verses to verse 9. So this is 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 9. St. Peter writes, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. So here we see St. Peter framing the command about our duties as earthly citizens within a larger discussion of our heavenly citizenship. So by the merciful blood of Christ and our union with him, we who were not a people have become the people of God. In fact, St. Peter says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar, uh, that means unique or special, not weird, although we can be weird sometimes, a peculiar people. And this is the same language that God uses in the Old Testament to describe Israel. So in the Old Testament, you will recall that God's people were a specific national group, a specific ethnic group, physically descended from specific patriarchs, um, dwelling in a specific geographical location that was their ancestral homeland. But in the New Testament, God has expanded the family and he's expanded the nation to include all those who are united to Israel's true king, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. This new people of God, this new nation is not limited to a particular bloodline, a particular geography, or a particular language. Now, we might conclude that this means that the people of God in the New Testament are therefore inherently apolitical. St. Peter calling us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that's a very political statement indeed. One of the earliest creedal statements that we have going all the way back to the New Testament era is the simple claim, Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is our king, that means that all other lords and all other kings are much less absolute in their authority than they'd often like. And yet, rather than make Christians a dangerous source of potential revolution, the lordship of Jesus and our status as God's people is to lead us to a better earthly citizenship. Our conversation among the Gentiles, Peter says, that means our conduct among those nations in which we live, it's to be honest, truthful, and good. They might accuse us of evildoing, but our good works show that accusation to be a lie. And ultimately, those good works bring glory to God. Indeed, as St. Peter says, we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. And that includes being strangers and pilgrims in our earthly homeland. This then leads us to verse 13 of our epistle. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, and free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now in the early second century, we, we have the writings of an anonymous disciple who scholars think may have been one of St. Paul's students, writing to a Roman official, possibly the famous Marcus Aurelius. And in this epistle, he's describing the life of Christians. He's making a case, making an apology for Christians, apology in that technical sense where he's defending Christianity before this Roman official. In uh, chapter five of this letter, he uh, is describing the Christian life in the civil sphere. And this anonymous disciple writes this. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. 
As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. This is the exact kind of conduct that St. Peter is talking about in our epistle. Regardless of how we're treated, we are to do the right and godly thing. Because this present world is not our home, because the Lord Jesus is our king, we are to be good neighbors, ideal citizens, and obedient people, all of which then silences the foolish and ignorant accusations. And in fact, our very status as mere pilgrims living as strangers in the land of our birth, that gives us a kind of freedom. Now, we Americans, we love our freedom. We certainly love our freedom. And when we look at the current political rancor in our society, isn't much of that really fighting over what it means to exercise those freedoms? Doesn't much of the polarization and, in fact, hostility in our country's political sphere boil down to questions over which freedoms are to be protected and which freedoms should we sacrifice for the, for, for the sake of those protected freedoms? In our epistle, St. Peter puts our freedom into a Christian perspective. He writes, as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. So our freedom as Christians comes from being God's servants. Our liberty is not an excuse for maliciousness, not an excuse for wicked thoughts, wicked speech, wicked deeds. But rather than building up our pride, our freedom and liberty as Christians leads us to humility. Our freedom leads to godly service. Why is this? Well, because we are free, free first and foremost from sin. We're free first and foremost from the world, the flesh, and the devil. These four enemies, sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are not in control of our lives as Christians. Our lives belong to Jesus. Our lives belong to the Prince of Peace. Now, when we look at our current political and civil society as Americans, it seems that peace is the one thing that is pretty impossible. Talking heads on cable news have led us to believe that civil politics is a zero-sum game. So Republicans must hate Democrats, Democrats must hate Republicans. After all, isn't that other party irredeemably wicked and stupid and hell-bent on destroying our way of life? So if I didn't vote for him, the current occupant of the White House is not my president. If I disagree with the decisions of the Supreme Court, that court must be illegitimate in anything from court packing to maybe not encouraging, but at least kind of tacitly being okay with violence may be justified to bring about that change. All is fair in the war we call politics. But as a Christian, that's not the way it is. As a Christian, you are free from that cycle. You do not have to be catechized by Fox News or CNN. You definitely don't need to be catechized by Facebook and Twitter. St. <laughs> Peter would argue that we really shouldn't be. So by all means, be an, be, an informed, be an informed voter. Be a responsible citizen. 
do your civic duty, and do so with an eye toward promoting righteousness and the common good by your vote. But don't be enslaved to the world's gain. As a Christian, you are free to be at peace because you are a pilgrim. Riffing off of Romans 13, where St. Paul calls the civil ruler the minister of God for the sake of punishing evil and rewarding good, um, our reformers, like many of the Christians in the imperial era, saw the civil executive, the prince is who they usually called him, as working somewhat in concert with the church as God's representatives to the people. That's why the emperor calls the, uh, the, the, the councils, is because he's God's representative in the civil sphere in the old days, and the reformers really wanted to see this kind of thing happen again. And to oversimplify the way they saw this a little bit, they would say the prince has a God-given duty to exercise God's justice by establishing and enforcing good laws. The church, on the other hand, has, God, has the God-given duty to exercise God's mercy through the preaching of the word and the administering of the sacraments, and also a duty to be a prophetic voice to the prince. They really kind of saw we have two hands of God, the civil and the churchly one. So as such, for our reformers, not only is obedience to the civil authorities seen as a duty of all Christians, but also prayer for those civil authorities. Our prayer book is, has those kinds of prayers scattered all throughout it. One of the things that the prayer book teaches us to be as good citizens through prayer one of the chief things that these prayers ask for is that God would give the civil authorities the grace to enact godly justice and to remember whose ultimate authority they bear. Lord, teach these folks, change their hearts so that they would realize that they are representing God and they have a duty to proper godly justice. Now, those kinds of prayers and that kind of obedience is relatively easy when we see the authorities living godly lives and enacting godly policy. Um, there's probably a bit of an irony in that even at the best of times, about half the population thinks they're not doing that. But what about, what about when our civil authorities are doing, are, are doing everything wrong? Not just wrong in terms of things that we disagree with, but wrong in an absolute moral sense as clearly outlined in scriptures. Well, again, the scriptures tell us our first duty is to pray. And I personally have found that uh, the civil prayers in the Book of Common Prayer are most comforting when I'm most disgusted with our civil authorities. In those prayers, I'm reminded that God is still in control and that I still have a duty to honor those whom God has put over me. A second, as Peter said in Acts chapter 5, there are times when we have to draw the line in the sand and say we must obey God rather than men. Now, when St. Peter says that, when he coins the phrase back in Acts chapter 5, it was when he determined that he would continue preaching the gospel despite the civil and religious authorities flogging him, jailing him, and telling him to stop talking about Jesus. In the days before Constantine's conversion, many Christians faced death rather than worship the emperor by burning incense into his image. In those days, Tertullian was writing, he's been called the father of Latin theology, and he had this to say. He says, as to what relates to the honors due to the kings or emperors, we have a precept sufficient that it behooves us to be in all obedience according to the apostles' precept, subject to magistrates and princes and powers. He's drawing that directly from our text today. 
He goes on, though, he says, but within the limits of discipline, so long as we keep ourselves separate from idolatry. There's a certain things we can't do as Christians. And he goes on to illustrate that point with the story of the three young men in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. You might recall in that story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were really the best of King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. They were loyal, they were competent, they were righteous. Despite, or perhaps we might say because of that, they could not obey the king when he commanded everyone to worship his image. This is a good lesson for us as Christians. Even as we're called to be good neighbors and model citizens, our duty to God does eclipse our duty to civil authorities. And we should be prepared to suffer for the sake of obeying God if that becomes necessary. That was St. Peter's point last week in the epistle, which actually follows today's reading by a few verses. It's kind of our epistles flip-flopped for whatever reason these two weeks. And remember from last week that St. Peter said God would be honored if we suffer for doing what's right, but it's really no honor to suffer for doing what's wrong. That's where we make that, that choice as Christians. And even if such suffering is required, we're still called to honor the authorities. That's hard to do. But notice how St. Peter concludes today's passage. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. All four of these things are intertwined. All four of these things are connected. If we fear God, we will honor all people as those made in his image. We will not hate those of the other party. We're going to give folks the benefit of the doubt because they're God's children as well. If we love our fellow, if we, if we fear God, we're going to love our fellow Christians as God's people. We're not going to throw our brothers and sisters under the bus. If we fear God, we will honor the king, even if the civil authorities are abusing their authority, because God is still in control. And those authorities will answer to God. And your ultimate citizenship, your heavenly citizenship, is secured regardless of what happens to those guys. You belong to the Lord Jesus. He is your king. And he has made you and I his brethren and co-heirs in the world to come. And that is a promise that no governor, no president, no king, no emperor can ever take away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.